Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Joe, listeners, imagine yourself a time-traveling wanderer in the 16th century. It's a time of horror and wonder, of, of budding possibilities for a more informed age, as well uh, as pools of lingering shadow and superstition. You come to the monastery of St. Anthony in Eisenheim, near Colmar in what is now modern-day France. Now, what do you expect to find at such a monastery? Uh, how has your education and entertainment prepared you for such a place? Pious robed brothers praying before elaborate altars, studious monks secluded in their libraries and scriptoriums. Ah, but here you encounter the stench of illness and corruption. You hear the cries of the pained and the mad. You find the hospital brothers of St. Anthony as they tirelessly treat victims of plague, skin disease, and especially that condition known as St. Anthony's fire or ergot poisoning. As you make your way through the monastery, you glimpse blackened limbs. You hear psychotic cries, voices describing hallucinations straight from some surrealistic vision of hell. And as you enter the sanctuary yourself, you glimpse an altar unlike anything you've imagined before. Behold the Eisenheim altarpiece of Matthias Grunwald. In its current configuration, the great folding work of art presents a familiar motif, Jesus Christ crucified at Golgotha, but it's easily the most grotesque image of Christ you've ever seen. You'd be tempted to think it blasphemous even, for Christ's skin is dark, at times greenish, gangrenous, covered in sores, in addition to the familiar wounds of execution. Because this work of art, this interpretation of absolute human death and suffering, emerges from the ravages of ergotism. 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 So that's going to be the subject today, but I've seen this work of art you're talking about. Uh, yes. You've called attention to it before, Grunewald's Diseased Christ. And it looks like something that is, as you pointed out, intended to be blasphemous. It looks like something from a metal album insert, like, you know, you're flipping through the pages of the, the CD insert, and it's got a pentagram, mm-hmm. and it's got like a, you know, crucified goat with blood everywhere, <laughs> and then it's got this diseased Jesus with, with you know, sores and this greenish body. It, it doesn't look like your traditional image of the of pious Christ. Right. Yeah, it's and it's it's fascinating in that it is when you we get into it, you'll see that it is a very pious image. Uh it was not created out of any sense of uh you know blasphemous uh, outrage, but it, it it does look like zombie Jesus. Yeah. So what is ergot and what in the world would something called ergot have to do with a diseased Christ from a metal album insert? So imagine you're walking through a grain field with tall stalks of rye all around you. And uh, so we're not all that close to the agriculture that sustains our lives anymore. Uh, Rye might actually need some explanation. It is a cultivated grass crop, so it's like wheat or barley. And we can use rye to make breads, beer, whiskey. The scientific name of this plant is uh, Sicale cereale, I think. Sicale and then like cereal with an E at the end. Okay. (laughs) So you're a body, meeting a body, coming through the rye, and you notice that on some of the stalks of the grass of the rye, where the little rye grains would normally be poking out of the stalk, there are instead these long, dark, purple-to-black fingers reaching into the air. 
like twisted, deformed little uh, mockeries of the seeds that should be in this plant. What are these things? Well, each of these little fingers is an ergot, or uh, another name for them in science would be the sclerotium. It's a piece of fungal tissue, so it's mushroom in nature, fungus, Mm -hmm. and it grows when the grain is infected with the fungus claviceps purpurea. And that's a parasite that infects the ovaries, the, the female sex organs of the plant in grasses. And the host is most often rye, but other grasses and grains can fall victim to ergot. This is so common in rye that people actually thought it was a part of the grain up until the 1850s when we really began to understand the, the true fungal nature of the ergot. Which is something to keep in mind as we discuss uh, uh, the problems that emerge from human <laughs> consumption of ergot. Exactly right. And so we're going to get to the human consumption in a minute because that's central to the podcast. But first we should actually talk about what this thing is. What does it do to the plants? Because nobody nobody cares about the plants. They're the <laughs> ones that really suffer. So the ergot itself, what is this thing? This little black, purple-black finger poking up out of the rye stalk. The ergot itself is what's known as an overwintering structure. It's so it's this protective architecture that allows the fungus to survive through the freezing season and make it to the next stage in its reproductive cycle. Uh, and claviceps produces both sexual and asexual spores to spread and infect new hosts. When the fungal infection cycle begins, you'll often see dew forming on the ovaries of the host plants, you know, where the, where the seed and, and grain structure is. Uh, and this sticky residue is a mixture of the plant's own sap and then asexually produced fungal spores called conidia. And these asexual spores can infect other hosts when they're spread by physical contact, uh, so on the bodies of insects or even by the splashes of raindrops. I don't know if Ooh. you've seen anything about how some parasites spread from plant to plant by the rain. When the rain hits the plant, it splashes the parasite everywhere onto the plants next to it. Huh. So that's one method of transmission. But then as the seed head matures, some of its normally healthy grains are replaced by these ergots, or sclerotia, uh, which are designed to keep the fungal parasite alive through the cold months. When the spring arrives, the surviving ergot uh, sprout multiple stromata, which are these stalks with little knobs at the end. And they look more like what you think of when you hear the word mushroom. They're the, the stromata, singular stroma, produce sexual spores as opposed to the asexual spores produced at the earlier stage called ascospores. And once the spores are developed, they get spit out into the air to carry on the circle of life of fungus. And so, like wind-driven pollen, they get caught in the stigma of other host plants and go on to infect new grass ovaries. So, that's the story of Claviceps purpurea. It's not trying to get into you. It's trying to get into the rye. It wants to spread from plant to plant like a plague upon the earth and, and <laughs> become the, the zombie virus that, that is the rye apocalypse. But that is not actually the end of the story. Because let's say we're back walking through this field of infected rye, Mm -hmm. and instead of just walking through the field, you're walking through the field with a scythe, and you're harvesting these ergot-infested stalks, fungus fingers and all. And you take it home, and you turn it into some delicious rye bread for you and your family to eat pastrami sandwiches on. What's going to happen to you? Well, (laughs) some uh, bad stuff can happen. Um, 
And in this, we get into sort of the, the complexities of, of ergotism and ergot poisoning, uh, because we have essentially two different forms of ergotism that can occur. Yeah. So in these overwintering structures, mm-hmm. uh, the, these little black fingers, there are toxic alkaloids, and they can have various types of effects, right? Yeah. There are, um, yeah, essentially there are different strains um, of the of the organism that have different effects uh, when consumed. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, you have um, gangrenous ergotism, which is as horrible as it sounds. So the idea here is that ergotism is essentially a vasoconstrictor. So it constricts the blood vessels. So it can severely limit the blood flow to the extremities, which can result in a range of symptoms. Um, you can get nausea. Limb pain, and this uh, this particular pain in the limbs is often described as having a burning sensation, uh, which uh, uh, earned it the uh, the nickname uh, Ignis Caesar or Holy Fire. Wow! And this can, it can also cause the skin to peel, blisters uh, to occur all over, and then this can essentially even lead to, uh, to to gangrene occurring because again the blood vessels are constricting. There's less blood reaching the extremities, and these extremities can then turn black and mummified, uh, causing the infected limbs to spontaneously break off at the joints. But there's no pain <laughs> involved in this because it's just been cut off. From so the, it's the already organism. dead, yeah. Yeah, it's just dead tissue at this point. Uh, but it's still rotting. It's still uh, The stench can still be just completely unbearable. Yeah, so just imagine that because you ate the regular food from your regular food supply mm-hmm. coming in maybe through your town bakery or something like that, you end up with mummified feet or mummified hands, and yeah. you're still alive, but you've got blackened limbs that burn at first, then turn black like a mummy and fall off. Yeah, it's what kind of surreal life is this? <laughs> I, I know it's, it's, it's terrifying, especially when you think about it coming from consuming bread, because we so often don't think of bread as being this dangerous thing, because it's such a an artificial food substance, right? Right. It's not like uh, mayonnaise left out in the sun that you can just you know right. we quickly think of as like that's going to be a problem in your body. But right. It's bread. What yeah. could go wrong? Okay, so that's gangrenous ergotism. But then there's also convulsive ergotism, and this is uh, the nervous dysfunction variant. Uh, and this can also result in a host of horrible things, such as vomiting, diarrhea, uh, lethargy, uh, the sensation of ants and spiders crawling all over your body. What? Yeah. <laughs> Painful seizures, twitching, spasms, convulsions, blindness, deafness. Um, and generally, uh, the the, um, the gastrointestinal symptoms that uh, I mentioned those precede a full blown central nervous system uh, condition. And in its in extremes, you're also encountering hallucinations, mania, and psychosis. Wow! Can you get both strains at the same time? Oh yes, that's where it gets even oh, worse. No, because on one hand you have the mummified, stinking, flesh rotting variant, and then you have the madness, spiders all over me, and I'm in a, just a psychotic, hallucinatory state. And indeed, um, they can occur concurrently, so you can get a mixed form. Though historically, we tend to see uh, geographic areas in Europe with uh, greater tendency towards one form of the disease uh, versus the other, uh, because again, we're looking at uh, slightly different strains of the fungus uh, causing either a convulsive or gangrenous ergotism. And then there's also this. The ergot stage of the fungus uh, contains a storehouse of various compounds, ranging from the benign to even, as we'll discuss, beneficial. Uh, And since the proportions of the compound vary even within the species, the same person might experience different symptoms on a subsequent consumption of the same ergot strain. Oh, man. So you're just kind of rolling the, like, awful Dungeon Master dice uh, every time you 
come across some ergot in your bread. That's so scary. And also just combine this with the fact that it, it, it was so common in the medieval period. Mm-hmm. And you can just imagine the confusion and the terror that went along with all of this suffering. Yeah, because you have you – in areas where there is a big dependency on rye bread – for food, yeah, and, and uh, so you're going to have uh, also you have areas where like one baker may be providing the entire town's bread. So you have cases where entire medieval towns suffered from this. Um, I mean, it was it was an epidemic. Um, on top of that, it tended to target the the poorer um, portions of the population because the dirtier your, your grain, the less choice you have in your your grain source and in your bread, uh, the more likely you are to uh, in, in, to encounter ergotism. Well, you know, that made me wonder, actually, how long ergotism has been a problem for grass-eating animals on Earth. Because one of the things that is certainly true is it's not just humans that get it. I mean, people don't just get it from rye cereals and rye bread and stuff. Uh, animals get it. Oh, from, yeah, livestock. Yeah, sure. livestock can suffer from gangrenous ergotism uh, just from eating infected grasses and grains. And apparently this might go back a really long time. I was wondering just how long has old claviceps been attacking hungry grass eaters with its overwintering structures? Well, we know the existence of ergot is tied to the existence of its host, which is grass. And until recently, we actually didn't know exactly how old grass was. I thought that was kind of weird, but uh, that was true. We, We didn't know exactly how far back this plant went. According to a 2015 report in the journal Paleodiversity, a chunk of amber from Myanmar contains a preserved sample of fungus structure very similar to ergot atop a grass spikelet. That's a little structure at the top of the grass mm-hmm. you know, that we, uh, where the ergot would be manifest. And this positions ergot fungus around 100 million years old. Oh, wow. So w- well within the Cretaceous period, which means... Dinosaurs. Okay. So we don't know exactly if dinosaurs ate this stuff, uh, and we don't know exactly what effect this stuff would have had on dinosaurs who ate it if they did eat it. But if they reacted anything like the mammals who eat it, that leads us to imagine a bizarre landscape (laughs) of Cretaceous herbivores like Triceratops at 20,000 pounds having nightmarish hallucinations and doing the St. Vitus dance. (laughs) Wow, I mean, I shouldn't laugh, poor, poor creature, but uh, but at the same time, yeah, to imagine this uh, this psychotic substance that we uh, uh, we end up focusing a lot on how it affects the, the human mind and our, and our perception of self and even our religion, but to imagine a, a dinosaur encountering it, a dinosaur essentially uh, in, engaging in a, a, a dangerous um, uh, psychedelic substance, it's uh, it's pretty mind blowing. Mind blowing would be a word for it. Now, of course. The human relationship with ergotism also seems to go back very far. Oh yeah, um, it, it gets it gets interesting because um, you know you also deal with, with situations where all right, it, it, it's, ever, it's, it's only going to show up in places where you actually have civilizations consuming a lot of rye. Yeah, um, there are Assyrian tablets from around uh, 600 BCE that speak of a quote noxious pustule in the ear of grain. Hmm. There, um, we also see uh, South Asian Zoroastrian uh, uh, texts that uh, write of, quote, grasses that cause pregnant women to drop the womb and die in childbirth. Uh, and those are from uh, around 400 BCE to 300 BCE. 
But then, uh, you know, we turn to the Greeks and Romans, who we often depend on for, you know, accounts of uh, of happenings in the ancient world, and they were not big on rye bread, so they make no mention of it, um, which, of course, really cuts into our ability to track it through the ancient world. Yeah. And yet, uh, the Greeks do, and this is kind of arguable, but um, the Greeks do give us the uh, myth of the Temple of Eleusis, devoted to the cult of Demeter and Persephone, uh, a literal uh, descent into hell, if you remember that story with uh, yeah. you know, uh, Persephone abducted by Hades, etc. Wait, hold on. The, the the temple is a literal descent into hell? No, no, no. Well, the, the myth is a literal yeah, descent Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, but they're they're concerned with uh, with this story. Uh, oh, I see. Yeah, not, the myth of the temples. Right. Yeah. So not to to rehash the whole story, but of course it in- involves uh, essentially springtime and summer being kidnapped by Hades and the the inevitable cycles of seasons uh, that of course ties into agriculture. And this is in an old agrarian cult. And in order to enter this temple, you had to fast, you had to rest, you had to make sacrifices, and you also drank something called kaikion. Uh, which is a strange purple potion. Um, and again, think of claviceps purpurea, uh, resulting in tears, hallucinations, tremors, and sweats. And so some suggest that this might have been derived from claviceps purpurea. And, uh, and who better than an ancient agrarian cult to utilize the reality-warping powers of a crop fungus, right? Yeah, this points out one thing that's especially scary. I think I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was earlier in this episode, but the way in which agriculture is so deeply tied to civilization. Mm -hmm. Like, in some ways, agriculture is sort of the definition of civilization. When does civilization arise? It's when we settle down and grow crops. Mm -hmm. And what are our main crops? They're grains. Right. Uh, Then also there is the fact that, much like you're pointing out here, many of the world's religions, and especially many ancient religions, have deeply agricultural themes that are based on grains. There, you know, there are death and rebirth cycles of the gods and of the ancient heroes that are based on the cycles of seasons, the growth of crops and the harvest. Yeah, indeed. I mean, you see that transition from the old gods of the hunt, the chaotic gods of the hunt. I don't know what my, my, my next meal is going to reach me. It depends entirely on what kind of animal I can kill to this more dependable cyclical nature and the various agrarian gods that go with it. Yeah, so it's obvious that over time the notion of agriculture has been deeply ingrained in us, like, <laughs> pun not intended, uh, deeply sort of injected into our minds and, and into our cultures so that it even shows up in our mythological and magical symbols. So the idea that our grain can be corrupted in a way that, that makes us see hell, you know, mm-hmm. and, and feel burning in our bodies is so, is so perverse and unpleasant and, and, disruptive of what society should be, which is safety and stability. Yeah. Of course, ignoring the the fact that agriculture itself is kind of a perversion of a natural process for our benefit. Yeah, that's a good point. So, anyway, it's not until the Christian era that ergotism is actually described in surviving accounts again. Uh, And this is around the time when rye is introduced into Western Europe. So our very early uh, outbreaks of ergotism, we see them documented in the Rhine Valley in the year 857. Wow. And again, it disproportionately uh, affects the poor who had less choice about uh, you know, their grain sources and their, the, how dirty their grain is. Um, 
And uh, ergot was most uh, common when a harsh winter followed a cool, wet spring because uh, many would exhaust their food supplies and they'd be forced to eat the infected grain. Okay, so they knew something might not be great about the grain that had lots of ergot in it. Yeah, just the the dirtier grain. Yeah, yeah. there was they weren't able to like completely put everything together, but there were, there was some ideas about it. Um, and then from around 900 uh, CE, uh, when records uh, uh, evidently became more common in what is now France and Germany, to around uh, uh, 1300 CE, uh, you see severe epidemics of ergotism affecting large areas every five to ten years. Oh, man. Yeah. And, of course, it becomes such uh, an issue that in 1093, you see the, the founding of a religious order, the Order of uh, Hospitallers of St. Anthony, uh, founded in southern France to help those afflicted. Uh, St. Anthony is, of course, the patron saint of skin diseases, and the, the malady itself was named St. Anthony's Fire. Uh, Anthony, uh, of course, is said to have faced supernatural temptations, kind of hallucinatory uh, encounters. So uh, uh, this is, a, of course, a favorite subject in Western art from the medieval uh, period onward, huh. which makes him even more suitable for this. So the monks built uh, over 370 hospitals, and those who came uh, often uh, found some relief from ergotism. Uh, though it, it's kind of, you can kind of get into the situation how much of it is their treating of the skin ailments. And they, mm-hmm. tra- they, they also treated other skin ailments beside, er- besides ergotism. Yeah. But then also while you're under their care, you're probably not continuing to consume that rye bread, oh. uh, while you're under the care of the hospitalers. So that can contribute to your, um, recovery. And the first oh, thing you go back home and you exactly. eat infected oh. bread and you're back restarted. Yet another reason it seems like we're all rather fortunate we don't live in medieval Europe. Yes. Um, and, of course, you have other things that are occurring uh, uh, probably due to ergotism as well. As Oliver Sacks points out in his excellent book, Hallucinations, uh, some historians attribute ergot poisoning as a possible factor uh, much later with the Salem uh, witch hysteria in uh, the New World. But it may also explain the dancing plagues reported between the 14th and 17th century as well. So individuals suddenly behaving erratically in mass. Uh, you, you get into arguments, is this mass hysteria? Is this more of a, a you know, a, a, a social um, contagion? Or is it indeed uh, tied to the consumption of ergot and, 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 and suffering from convulsive ergotism? Yeah, and obviously we don't have the answer there. Uh, I think a lot of people are skeptical of the idea that ergot caused the dancing manias. If you're not familiar, you should look these up. They're, they're crazy. The, the idea is that, you know, in random places throughout Europe in the medieval period, you'd have suddenly lots of people would just start dancing and it it seemed to they seemed possessed in some way like the, they couldn't stop yeah <laughs> and people were afraid they didn't know what was going on and now i mean i don't really see phenomena like that occurring today so i don't even really know what i could compare it to well there you do see accounts of mass hysteria um and and uh, we actually have an episode on this off the link to on the uh, the landing page for this episode, but you do see accounts where you'll say have a group of, uh, of school children at a at a, at a you know an academy somewhere, and they they all believe they've come down with an illness when there's actually no illness, that sort of thing. Um, uh, also, in the past you know few centuries, uh, accounts of uh, 
everyone uh, in a particular area claiming to see some sort of supernatural event. Did yeah. they all really see it, or is it just kind of this this group, uh, you know, this collective hysteria that's taking over them? Yeah. So the general hypothesis is that it might have had something to do with some of these dancing manias. We don't know, but the specific one about the Salem witch trials is interesting. Uh, how exactly does the does the ergot theory come in here? Yeah, some historians uh, feel that it's entirely possible that uh, Elizabeth Terrace, the first girl to f- to fall ill, actually suffered from some sort of ergot poisoning. And then the rest of the girls um, took the opportunity to uh, stave off their boredom uh, and, and engage in this kind of persecution. It, it kind of drives home like the problem of pointing out any kind of strange occurrence in the past and saying, oh, well, this was this poisoning or this was a psychedelic or, or what have you, because ultimately the social dynamics of these situations are fairly complex and they, yeah. they can be multiple energies feeding into them. Yeah, yeah. Psychohistory is a very difficult thing to try to do. Didn't Josh Clark write something about this for the website? He did. He wrote, uh, were the American colonists drugged during the Salem witch trials? And uh, in it, he uh, he points out that, uh, you know, one of the, the criticisms uh, with some of these uh, theories, uh, uh, you know, raises the question, uh, why only the girls? Why not the others? Why only 1692? Why not previous years and later years? So, uh, yeah, when you start trying to say, you know, say ergotism is the, is the, 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 the smoking gun here, uh, there are just so many additional questions that arise. Yeah. Like bread. Like bread. <laughs> just, to, just to make sure we get another baking uh, analogy in there. Well, terrible puns. But, I mean, whether or not it had any role to play in dancing manias or the Salem witch trials, it certainly was a real phenomenon that was psychedelic and horrifying. Yeah. Now, we mentioned uh, that by the 1850s, we had a pretty good understanding of how uh, ergotism works. Yeah. Uh, the last reported outbreak, and this is by no means uh, conclusive. There are alternate uh, theories for this as well. Um, the last reported outbreak uh, occurred in 1951. In Pont Saint Esprit in southern France, uh, in which uh, more than 200 cases were reported, along with four deaths. But again, that's not cut and dry either. So we mentioned the uh, the various compounds that are that are uh, that are in the, uh, the 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 fungus. Right, they have these alkaloids in them that can cause terrible symptoms and diseases, but they can actually be used, or maybe derivatives from them can be used for legitimate medical purposes, can't they? They can, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of one of the you know underlying ideas that any kind of particularly powerful substance produced by nature, uh, it can be utilized uh, efficiently yeah. if, uh, if properly uh, uh, managed. Yeah, one of my favorite technology stories is how to use animal venom in medicine. Yeah, like using scorpion venom in medicine to treat diseases. Oh stuff. yeah, I mean we 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 have numerous uh, uh, cases where we can take something that is uh, in nature uh, this deadly substance and we can use it for our own benefit in a medicine or say a spice, a flavoring. Um, you know <laughs> yeah. what? Is, what is a, a spicy pepper added to your um, your taco salad? But uh, or a fun way to see something unusual. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So with with ergot, we have a few different uh, compounds of note. Um, there's ergonavine. This is a compound produced by Claviceps purpurea that we've used for centuries and even today to um, to uh, speed up labor, uh, prevent uh, postpartum bleeding. And we see it. Uh, we and in this we see the uh, the uh, the vasoconstrictive properties of uh, of ergot put to good use. And this is typically administered during the third stage of labor. Huh. And then there's uh, ergotamine. Uh, this is uh, useful with migraine headaches because it uh, reduces extra cranial blood flow. It's also a serotonin agonist, uh, which can help uh, alleviate the headaches as well. And on top of that, there um, 
uh, scientists have looked into the possibility that uh, it could be used uh, treating Parkinson's disease, uh, since uh, ergot is a uh, dopamine agonist, meaning that it increases the effects of the neurotransmitter dopamine in the brain. Uh, in Parkinson's uh, patients, dopamine-transmitting neurons die off, so ergot derivatives are helpful in boosting the signal between nerve cells and the brain. And, of course, researchers can continue to explore uses for compounds produced by the claviceps fungus as well. That's right. I mean, muscle relaxers, potentially, a treatment of various uh, circulatory diseases, um, and it might even work as a possible anti-tumor drug. So, you know, the work continues. Again, it's a it's a powerful substance, and scientists uh, continue, continue to come back to it and look at possible uses for it. Right, but of course we would be remiss if we did not discuss at some length uh, the relationship between ergot and psychedelic drugs. That's right. Um, LSD in particular. Yeah, so ergot actually plays a role in the scientific isolation and discovery of LSD by the Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman, right? So yeah, back in the 1930s, uh, researchers at the Rockefeller Institute in New York uh, isolated lysergic acid from an ergot compound, and uh, the research uh, was the basis for Albert Hoffman's work at uh, Sandoz, a pharmaceutical uh, company. And, uh, and so the, the roots of LSD, the, the roots of, uh, of, uh, lysergic acid, uh, lie in the isolation of, uh, the compound within ergot. Yeah, so Albert Hoffman was actually the one in, uh, in the late 1930s to derive LSD-25, lysergic acid, uh, diethylamide. And if we believe the story, it was not originally created for the purpose of causing acid trips. Right. <laughs> now, they, the, the pharmaceutical companies had other things in mind, but, but I believe the story is that Hoffman accidentally dosed himself with this while working with it in the lab and began to feel weird. He began to feel the effects of, of an LSD trip. And after experiencing that once, he was like, well, that was kind of interesting. Maybe worth uh, doing some more Mm -hmm. research. And so so he synthesized a batch to test on himself, basically. Right. And so I know, you know, a number of people were probably wondering, what does that mean? I can grow ergot. I can cultivate ergot and uh, and therefore create my own LSD. Well, Uh, disclaimer, we're not recommending you do this. No, not at all. And uh, I, I have. Even if you would, you wanted to, I think you would probably stall out on this process. But uh, according to the Vaults of Arrowhead, which is a, a nonprofit educational organization that provides information about psychoactive plants and chemicals, uh, it, it's easier to do this uh, than depending on morning glory or Hawaiian baby wood rose for the lysergic acid amides that you need. Uh, now, we're not going to walk you through the process because it's um, – it's a long process, and, uh, and by the way, it includes the recommendation, quote, avoid prolonged contact with the ergot compounds as they are poisonous and can be fatal. <laughs> but suffice to say that it involves a lot of sterile and chemically specific handling of uh, claviceps purpurea as a first step in a long road to synthesizing LSD. Yeah, so in addition to the disclaimer, it's probably going to be difficult. Yeah, difficult, and you might poison yourself. So maybe just, you know... Go watch uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas again instead. There you go. Yeah. yeah. But I, I want to get back to that disease Jesus. Oh, yes. Get back to the uh, the Eisenheim altarpiece of uh, German Renaissance painter, painter Matthias Grunewald, lived uh, 1470 through 1528. And uh, as with uh, a number of these uh, you know older masters, you know we don't know a whole lot about his life. Uh, most mostly his his work is what still speaks to us, right? 
So one panel illustrates the temptation of St. Anthony in grotesque uh, detail with his demon tormentors displaying clear skin ailments uh, that, are, uh, that are clearly inspired by the skin ailments dealt with by the hospitalers. Yeah, what were the details of that uh, temptation? Uh, my, my recollection is that he basically went into the uh, into the desert, into the wilderness to to pray, as you do, oh. and uh, so kind of like Christ in the in the Gospels. Yeah, but I I, I don't recall them making any particular um, offers, like like the whole the <laughs> right. temptation of of Christ. Of course, the the devil offers to you know for Jesus to be the king of the world and all yeah. that. Uh, there's, there's more of a definite offer on the table where I think uh, uh, St. Anthony was just plagued by demons. Okay. Yeah. Do we get to turn these breads into stone? Or uh, turn <laughs> <laughs> Now, you might want to turn these breads into stones if they are ergot-infested Indeed. breads. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so St. Anthony is very much a part of the uh, altarpiece. Uh, but then we see this vision of the suffering Christ, uh, which we already uh, mentioned, who clearly displays symptoms uh, of the individuals that were suffering in the monastery, covered with sores, gangrenous flesh, uh, even his uh, hands and feet, uh, even though they're you know pierced by uh, by nails, uh, they're twisted and convulsed as if uh, one was suffering from convulsive uh, uh, ergotism. Right, and so it's not part of the religious tradition of any Christians that Christ actually suffered from ergot poisoning. Like, that's not in the Bible, that's not particularly a belief. This was just sort of an interpretive lens of Grunewald's, right? Yeah, in fact, I mean, up until the 13th century, the predominant style was was to depict Christ not even really suffering at all. Yeah, he would just be up there with his, uh, you know, his eyes um, eyes open, seemingly seemingly impervious to the physical torments. It's only after that that you start displaying Jesus as actually suffering as a human would up there, as opposed to just being above it like a god. Um, so, really, um, Grunewald was just taking this. Uh, to the local level, you know, because he's surrounded by individuals that are, are suffering from ergotism and other skin ailments. And so historians believe that he actually used those patients as his subjects, capturing clinical details uh, and their abnormal postures and using that uh, as the model for not only the, the demons uh, assaulting uh, St. Anthony, but, uh, but the suffering of Christ himself. That's actually kind of a... A moving way of thinking about how these people were grappling with their religion. So if their idea is that, uh, you know, what is the significance of Christ, that it's, you know, the powerful God coming down to earth to suffer with humanity, mm-hmm. it would make sense that they would they would impart to their vision of the, the suffering servant, the suffering God, the same things they were suffering from. It's sort of like a, a, a bonding relationship they can form with the God that they worship. Yeah, I mean, because ultimately you're laying there on the floor, you're suffering from ergotism, you're being attended to by these hospitalers. What kind of suffering Christ do you want to look up at? Do you want to see the serene, like, oh, I hardly notice I have nails in me? Do you want to see the, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm crucified, but I'm, you know, really buff and otherwise healthy? Or do you want to, to see a Christ that is suffering as you suffer? You Who know? knows what it's like to have the limbs blacken and, and to feel the ignis sacer? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree. I ultimately find it, you know, really really poignant. It also makes me wonder, like, how come we don't see like a sort of modern first world problems version of Christ on the cross? Since most of us can't relate to severe, uh, you know, fleshly torment, perhaps there's like a vision of Christ that be, could, could be created where uh, he does, just doesn't have enough bars on his cell phone or his, his oh, iPhone no. is running out of batteries, you know. And because that kind of suffering, the the modern millennial can uh, can relate to. Oh, uh, let's not paint that picture. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, speaking of painting pictures, though, um, there are various other uh, uh, artistic uh, interpretations of ergotism. Uh, there's one that came up uh, that I was really taken with, and it's just a minor one. It's a, a woodcut uh, titled St. Anthony's Fire Ergotism by Johannes uh, uh, Vechlin, and this is from around 149, probably 1490. 1530, somewhere in there, in which you see a man with a flaming, gangrenous hand appealing to St. Anthony. So it Whoa. looks kind of like uh, like it reminds me of the hand of glory, you know? Oh, I haven't seen this. Yeah, yeah, here it is. Here's a copy of it. Oh, that is amazing. So you have the, the saint is very tall. Yes. And then there's like a child sort of at knee level reaching up with, uh, with the crippled limbs, uh, but a flaming hand on fire beseeching the saint. Right. <laughs> And then, uh, then there's also, of course, uh, Hieronymus Bosch, uh, who is an even more towering figure in the history of Western art. Yeah, so the idea here is a little bit different. Not so much that the artist was inspired by a world of people suffering from ergotism, but perhaps that the artist might have been suffering from ergotism himself. Indeed, though, I mean, there are, there are some works uh, by Bosch, such as The Procession of the Cripples, which features a number of afflicted bodies, uh, and at least three of them uh, seem to be suffering from ergotism. So he did a little bit, at, l- at least, of observing ergotism in the world around him. Oh, sure. Yeah, I didn't mean to rule that out. No, 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 no. Um, and just to put uh, Bosch in his place historically, 1450 to 1516, early, highly highly influential Netherlandish painter known for his surrealistic, nightmarish, and cryptic imagery. Um, and this was very much a time when ergotism was epidemic. Uh, in the Netherlands. Yeah, if you haven't seen Bosch's paintings, actually, you probably have, you have. seen them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Here's, the, here's the clue that you're looking at a Bosch painting. Are there lots of little people in it, mm-hmm. and is it crazy? Yeah, are there like crazy bird demons, chamber pots on their head, like just those just surrealistic visions of medieval hell, coupled with uh, detailed depictions of peasants and uh, stunning, realistic landscapes. Yeah. Like, that's pretty much Bosch in a nutshell. And you would probably see his work uh, on, uh, like, uh, like one out of five college dorm room walls. Yeah. <laughs> not to, uh, I mean, not, not to, to say his work isn't brilliant, because it is. I, I mean, I still, I still can, get, can just lose myself staring into a Bosch painting, because there, this also is just cryptic. There's so many symbols at play. Yes. Uh, many of which would make more sense to a contemporary viewer, Particularly uh, in the clergy or a, you know a lay patron, uh, they're maybe a little more lost on us today. But uh, there's a lot going on, uh, and, and our mind just has to grapple with it when we yeah. look at one of his uh, paintings. Yeah, they're they're dark and highly imaginative. They they make a Rob Zombie music video look dull by comparison. Yeah, uh, in fact, he has his work has been uh, referenced in a couple of uh, music videos. I think Metallica did one where they had some. Uh, some uh, some uh, Bosch imagery going on, and yeah, then okay. Buckethead uh, <laughs> did a uh, a music video that is just basically one of Bosch's paintings animated. It's, oh wow! Yeah, it's, it's pretty pretty stunning. So so what's the argument here? <clears throat> well, if you look at Bosch's own Temptation of Saint Anthony triptych, uh, you'll see that it features people with amputated and mummified feet. You also see a half human, half vegetable tree woman creature. Uh, you see an egg-shaped structure belching smoke and flame. And there's an argument here that in the sort of the, the code of the painting that uh, the vegetable human is actually a mandrake, uh, which is, uh, <laughs> if, you, if you've ever you know, seen the works of uh, Guillermo del Toro, you know, the, yeah. the mandrake, or a Harry Potter, right? It's, it's kind of 
human looking. Uh, yeah, the, the root. And the herb was used to alleviate the pains of St. Anthony's fire uh, by the hospitalers. Okay. So, And then on top of that, the egg-shaped structure was possibly an apothecary's uh, retort, uh, the distillery used to uh, reduce medical herbs. Wow. So do you actually think Bosch was suffering from the, like the hallucinatory visions of ergot poisoning? Um, I tend to think not. I mean, some... Some people make a you know a rather impassioned argument for that, um, or even uh, I, I've seen some arguments that he maybe used uh, some sort of ergot derived uh, potion as part of uh, some sort of a cult he was in. Maybe he was aligned with the Cathars. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's almost like a, what would be the Renaissance equivalent of steampunk? I don't know alchemy. Alchemy, I guess. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, certainly there are a lot of uh, you know arguments. Uh, 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 Involving uh, Bosch's uh, involvement with uh, with alchemy, but uh, but yeah, I think it the it, it kind of gets back to the whole uh, dancing mania Salem witchcraft thing, right? Yeah, like the to, to point it to ergotism as the single smoking uh, gun for this uh, for this artist and his uh, his imagination. It's it's too easy and it's it's kind of limiting, you know. It, yeah, with, with a lot of these hypotheses, I think very often you have to say, well, that's interesting. But, I mean, we, we just don't really know. Yeah, and we ultimately know very little about uh, Hieronymus Bosch's life. Yeah. It's just, it, he's ultimately kind of a blank canvas, and you can, and there's room enough on that blank canvas to put anything you want, be it, uh, you know, involvement in some sort of a strange, uh, um, you know, psychedelic cult or, you know, some, some ergot poisoning in his time, which is certainly possible given where he lived and when he lived. But it's also just as possible that he was just a really imaginative, creative, highly skilled artist who was also who was working with uh, with with many established uh, symbols and motifs, but also embellishing them uh, in a, just a purely creative way. It's also entirely possible that he did suffer from some sort of hallucination or another. But there are so many reasons that you could experience a hallucination. There's so many ways that you could enter this altered mind. Uh, mind space that don't involve the consumption of ergot or any psychedelic substance. Sure. And then, of course, there's just the hypothesis that, like Grunewald, this was his environment. He was living in a world of of mummified limbs falling off of human, you know, like still living people and people suffering from madness, thinking that spiders were all over their skin. Right. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as we see in, with the uh, procession of the cripples and other works, I mean, he was very interested in the, the, the common man and what the, the, the common man dealt with and suffered with in life. And, uh, and so that's shading his depiction of these various religious motifs. But again, we'll never know for sure because uh, right. Bosch doesn't say anything about it. The only way he speaks with us is through these these uh, these brilliant works of art that uh, are still just as powerful today as they were uh, back when he was alive. Isn't it strange that such a tiny little organism uh, that, that doesn't even directly attack humans, you know, like its target is the rye. Yeah, we're just collateral we're, damage. We're, exactly. We're collateral damage, this little purple witch finger extending... <laughs> Out of a out of a plant has caused so much trouble for humanity and for the you know all the other animals. Indeed. All right, so there you have it, ergotism in a nutshell. Um, a look at the way it is uh, is influenced our history, our our biology, um, our art and religion. Um, really fascinating stuff. 
If you would like to see some of these images that we've been discussing here, check out the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's also where you will find all the other episodes we've uh, done. You'll find videos, you'll find blog posts, you'll find links out to our social media accounts such as Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. And follow us at those accounts by all means if you uh, use those social media systems. And if you have any interesting thoughts about ergotism or any other strange psychedelic substances that have somehow penetrated our diet throughout the years and throughout the centuries and want to talk to us about it, send us an email at blowthemind@howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Yeah.